risen. Amen. If you would, please turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We could ask the question, what hangs in the balance when we talk about the resurrection from the dead? People today sometimes seem indifferent about the afterlife. Will we have a life after this life? Some argue for a definite maybe. They really don't know, and they don't know if they can know. And in their minds, if there is an afterlife, they just hope they'll turn out okay with it. Others are certain. They say, no, after we die, there is nothing. Nothing happens after your consciousness goes mute. That's the end. We're nothing but a bunch of stardust. So buckle up, buttercup. Uh, others are confident that there is life after this life via reincarnation. And that's becoming more and more popular in our day. Uh, and in that framework of thinking... If you mess up this life, the worst that will happen to you is that you'll be reincarnated as a dung beetle. Uh, you know, in, in that scheme, life is like a pop can that gets recycled again and again, and hopefully someday you'll turn out as a bicycle. People think, of course I've got a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance. And there are other variations of how people think about what's going to happen to us after this life? What will happen to our consciousness after we die? I'll tell you what you already know. There is nothing squishy about what the Bible has to say about life after this life. There is nothing indifferent or indeterminate about what the Bible says about life after this life. We are told a lot. We're not told everything, but we are told exactly what we need to know. Uh, about the afterlife, and what we are told cuts like a knife through the speculation of our day. So I want to come back to the first question. What hangs in the balance when we talk about the resurrection from the dead? Well, according to our passage that we'll look at this morning, the Apostle Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what hangs in the balance? Everything, absolutely everything, hangs in the balance as to whether or not there is a resurrection after this life. Let's look at that together this morning. I'm going to read a part of 1 Corinthians 15. We'll start in verse 12 and work our way down through verse 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Let's pray. God, you are great, and your works are marvelous. Father, I confess this morning that we have done a fine job of messing this world up. And only you have the power to turn it back. And Lord, the the things that we have earned in this world can be summarized by death. But you have worked life through your son, Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would help us this morning to cherish your son. To cherish what you have done through him. Uh, in paying for our sins and raising him to new life in which we will live, Lord. And I pray that you will help us as we look into this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. As we work through this passage, I think the main call for us here is to hope in Jesus Christ, the firstfruits of the resurrection. We're going to see first, in the first chunk of verses here, the importance of the resurrection. Then we'll look at our hope through the resurrection. Verses 12 to 19, let's look at the importance of the resurrection. Now, as I just read through these verses, uh, maybe you got the thought that these are pretty negative in tone. Uh, Verses 12 to 19 can feel like a group of negative verses, and there is good reason for that. When God confronts a lie that threatens to damn our souls to hell, he's going to speak very negatively. God's word can get downright uncomfortable at times. Uh, But so does a hard conversation with a doctor who has to deliver bad news in order to point us in a direction of healing and restoration. Now, a lie had threatened to undo the gospel in the Corinthian church. Uh, Scott led us through Acts 17 a few Wednesday nights ago and There we saw the Epicureans and the Stoics, and they mocked the resurrection. They thought that the resurrection was foolish. Many sophisticated Greek philosophers thought that the idea of the resurrection from the dead was a preposterous scam. They thought that's about the most foolish thing that had ever been dreamt up. Uh, And the philosophy of Athens most certainly had made its way to Corinth. Corinth isn't that far from Athens, another important Greek city. And as is often the case, the falsehood that was outside of the church found its way into the church. Uh, Unfortunately, we have such a temptation to baptize any sort of idea out there and appropriate it for our lives. We are not so different at times from the people of Israel who were tempted to worship Baal. And the Corinthian church apparently had found its way towards entertaining this ideology, this philosophy that the resurrection was false. Uh, There was 
some question among the Corinthians as to whether or not there even was a resurrection from the dead. And hearing about these lies circulating in the church, the Apostle Paul rolled up his sleeves. Uh, there is such a negative tone in verses 12 to 19 because Paul is trying to shake them awake from the delusion that they're entertaining. Everything hangs in the balance here. In the early verses of this chapter, Paul mentions that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is an essential part of the gospel. He says in verses 3 to 5, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. This is an essential part of the gospel. Paul is boiling it down, and what's included in that? The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so, what do we do with it? Where do we go if we deny the resurrection? Paul brings this up. He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Uh, Paul begins to work in the next verse, several verses here to work out the implications of what that means. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. Now this is pretty simple logic. If there's no resurrection, full stop, then Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. That's a pretty straightforward, logical conclusion. Now we could assume other things that would flow from that, but Paul doesn't leave us in the world of assumptions. He spells it out for us. If Christ hasn't been raised, he goes on to say, then the apostles' teaching and their testimony to the resurrection is vain. It's false. You know, think about it. What are they doing getting themselves killed for a dead Messiah? But there's more. If the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection is false, then so is the Corinthians' hope of eternal life after this world. If there is no resurrection, then the gospel is a sham. I would suggest this morning that if Jesus is still dead, then we are wasting our time right now. Why in the world are we doing what we're doing if Jesus isn't alive? Next, we see here, if Christ isn't raised, then the apostles are fraud. They're fraudulent. And we are frauds every time we mention a Jesus who is alive today. Every time we sing about the resurrection, we would be singing a lie if he's not raised. And if I preach a risen Christ, who in fact stayed dead 2,000 years ago, then I will give an account to God for that. There's another problem here, Paul points out. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, and as I mentioned, the gospel is a sham. And the consequences of that in verse 17 is that we would still be in our sins. Any hope of forgiveness of, and salvation that we trusted and we believed in Jesus died along with him. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, it was a vindication of his righteousness. The fact that he rose again from the dead vindicated him, proved that, in fact, he was not a sinner, that his death was not just. It was also 
the resurrection was a sign of the Father's approval of Jesus and the sacrifice he made. So, if Jesus' body lies somewhere on planet Earth, then heaven is not our home. That's what Paul's arguing here. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then our sins still stain our souls, and we will fall in the coming judgment. And that brings us to our next point in verse 18. If the gospel hope is false for us, then it's false for others too. And those who have, that we loved and who have died in the hope of eternal life in Christ have died and gone nowhere, at least nowhere good. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then those who have died believing in Christ are gone forever. You know, sometimes uh, people say things like, well, if Christianity is false, uh, I still want to live like a Christian because that's the good life anyways. Uh, and I, I think people who say that haven't really come to grips with what Paul has just said here. Uh, Paul says in verse 19, instead, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the gospel is a sham, then we are the most pitiable people on earth. Uh, just as an illustration of this, you could imagine uh, a young girl in an orphanage. And perhaps she was told that on April 20th, who, her new parents were coming to pick her up. You could imagine the excitement. She'd be getting her little heart and mind and life ready for this new transition. She's saying goodbye to her friends and she's giving away the little bit that she has. And she spends the rest of her time in the orphanage in a state of joy. She's so excited to enter into a new family. But then April 20th comes and goes, and nobody comes to pick her up. April 21st comes and goes, and still nobody. Every day comes and goes, but nobody's there to take her home. Could you imagine the kind of heartbreak that would be? It breaks my heart to think about it. You know what? That's only a taste of the disappointment and shame that would be true for us if Christ isn't raised from the dead. If we have been hoping and looking forward to the resurrection, but it turns out to be a sham, man, we are worth pitying. If the gospel is a farce, we would be worth pitying. Now, here we are anticipating the return of Christ, but it's not happening. Here we are waiting for new life, but it's never coming. What are we suffering for if that were the case? If the resurrection is false, here's the bottom line. If it's false, we lose everything. If Christ is still dead, then we have nothing. That is a, a painful pill to swallow. And it's a hard thing to think about. But that is what Paul is pressing here. And it's hard to spend time and it's not very fun to think about that. But Paul is trying to wake them up from the delusion that they're facing. And we need to think about that in our own lives. Sometimes we can stand before the grandeur and the beauty of things like the resurrection of Christ, and we can yawn. We can take for granted the precious hope of Christ's resurrection. But we shouldn't. It means everything for us. Now, it's one thing 
to question how it can be. How can the resurrection take place? Uh, it's one thing to come with grips with that, because the truth is, it's impossible. That somebody would be that dead and come back to life is not possible in naturalistic terms. It doesn't happen, except for one possibility. And that is that God himself does it. And that's the hope that we believe in. That in fact, God has raised Christ from the dead. There is no naturalistic explanation for it. It was a miracle at God's hands. As much of a downer as these verses can feel like for us, uh, that's not the last note here. So I want to turn next to our hope through the resurrection in verses 20 to 28. Paul cuts through the dismal deal of verses 12 to 19 with a simple truth. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. What does that mean? It means that the gospel is true. The testimony of the apostles to the resurrection is true. Christ himself has proven the resurrection. And Christ himself is the resurrection and the life. All of the agonizing things we thought about in verses 12 to 19 evaporate before the risen Christ. Brothers and sisters, he is risen. That's only the start we see in this passage. Paul says next that he is the first fruits from the dead. He is the first one to rise who guarantees the resurrection of everyone to follow. All those who have fallen asleep in Christ and who will fall asleep before he comes will be raised when he comes. Our loved ones who have died in Christ will be raised up again to live with him and with us forever. Just as Adam, Paul goes on to argue here, has been the fountain of death, Christ has become the fountain of life. Read those verses again. Verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It was the first sin in the garden that brought death into this world. And because of that, death has spread to all. Sin brought death through Adam. And it was the sinless death of Jesus Christ that brought life. Death had no right to hold Jesus. And so it couldn't. And it didn't. Death had reigned so successfully until Christ. And his life reigns now instead. There is something that has become broken about death. From which it will never recover. Jesus has dealt a mortal wound to death. And now it's only a matter of time before it expires. Paul tells us uh, here that there is a timeline and an order of events before death dies for good. Read it again, verse 23 and following. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The first and decisive event was the resurrection of Christ. That came first. Then when he returns, those that belong to him will be raised as well. It's the second event. Uh, see that in verse 23. The third event mentioned here is the end. That is when Christ delivers the kingdom of God uh, to God the Father after destroying all of his enemies. 
Now, you might have thought last week when I was going through Psalm 110 and its appearance in the New Testament that I had mentioned every single possible reference. How could there be any more? Well, there is another one right here in this passage. Uh, in verse 25, it says, For he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. That phrase comes right out of Psalm 110.1. There's another one here for you. In Psalm 110.1, the idea is passive. All God's enemies will be made a footstool for Jesus' feet. Here, the idea is active. Christ will actively subject those enemies under his feet. By the end of this time, after Christ has reigned for a thousand years, by that time, every enemy will be subject to Christ. And then there's only one last enemy to defeat, and that's death. Death will be finally and ultimately defeated at the end. Verse 27 to 28 tell us about the final wrap-up. Ultimately, everything will be brought into subjection to God. At the end, everything will be brought under God. So let's take stock of these truths as we wrap up here. If verses 12 to 19 told us about the dismal things that would be true if the resurrection were false, then let's consider what is true because the resurrection is true. First, because Christ raised from the dead, that means that the gospel holds true hope. We do not follow a farce. The promise of enjoying God forever that we see in the gospel is trustworthy. It will come to pass. We have not believed in vain. We are not, of all people, most to be pitied. Uh, we have a living hope. Second, our sins are in fact forgiven. The sacrifice of Christ has been accepted. His righteousness has been vindicated. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has secured our salvation from our sin. Third, those who have died in Christ will live again. Those who have trusted in Christ have not gone off into the dark alone. They have gone into the arms of Jesus. And they will come with him when he returns. Fourth, death is currently broken and one day it will be ultimately crushed. Apart from Christ, death is a terrible prospect and a terrifying foe. When Jesus rose from the dead, he triumphed over death. On that day, the day that he rose from the dead, uh, the dam of death was structurally compromised. There is coming a day when that dam will burst. Death will not be able to hold on to its captives any longer. One day, death itself is going to be thrown into the lake of fire, and then death will die. And in light of that truth, for us today, it is not death to die, as the hymn says. I certainly hope that Jesus returns before I die, but even if he doesn't, I know that death is not the terror that it once was, and not, not to anybody and, and not to me. Uh, I w used to be incredibly afraid of dying as a kid, and I used to think about eternity and not know what that would mean for me. Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not eager to die, but I am comforted about the reality of my own mortality. I have comfort for life beyond this life that I did not have as a kid. And I hope that you know that comfort as well. If you have any fear about that, then I encourage you to look to the Lord Jesus Christ who has died for sin and who is raised again. That is our hope and security.
In his death, we find confidence in the forgiveness he offers, and in his resurrection, we find confidence in an eternal life with him. So fourth, the fourth thing we've seen here is that we can trust that through his resurrection, death has been defeated, and it will ultimately be defeated. The fifth thing in this passage is that the resurrection secures the future wrapping up of this world. Currently, Christ is at the right hand of the Father where he currently reigns and from which place he will come to reign on earth. When all is said and done, he will reconcile all things back to God. Those who have rejected him will be judged and those who have trusted him will be delivered. Had Christ stayed dead, then that would be the end. Death would have the final word in this world, but Christ has raised And his resurrection has secured the consummation of God's plan in this world. So on this Easter Sunday, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you in the hope of the resurrection. Because he has raised from the dead, we will too. In his resurrection, our resurrection is secured. We don't have to face this world with uncertainty about what will follow. He has given us a certain hope for the future, a hope that is certain. You know what, though? We haven't gotten there yet. Today, there is sickness and pain and death, but it will come to an end. There is coming a day when every tear will be wiped away. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning, the psalm says. We don't know exactly when the crucifixion happened, when the resurrection happened. But, being 2023, if 33 AD was the time, then it was about 1990 years ago. That event took place in history, and it has changed all of history. Ever since the garden, the trajectory of this world has been towards death and decay. Now after that moment, after the tomb has been emptied, there is a new trajectory. Christ's life reigns, and we will reign with Christ. We have life in him, and we have life that will last forever. There is incredible hope for us in that. Let's rejoice this morning in our living Christ that we worship. I want to transition now to a time of communion. Uh, If you are trusting,